The True Ambition Podcast with John Zink is brought to you by IT Avalon. IT Avalon, IT staffing and professional services done right. Visit our sponsor at itavalon.com. Now, welcome to True Ambition. Hey everybody, welcome to the True Ambition Podcast. This is John Zink, and I'm honored today to be uh, joined by Mr. Brian Dunn, and uh, he is the drummer uh, for the last seven years, am I right about that? Eight years? Eleven. Eleven! Uh, I was reading something that was way <laughs> off. Eleven yeah. years for uh, Hall and & Oates, and uh, first time I saw him, was on uh, live from Daryl's house. And uh, not only does, does he do that, but he also has a recording facility in his house and uh, does a, a bunch of uh, recording for uh, musicians, uh, TV, movies, all of the above, right? Yeah. That's cool. Yep. Uh, he's born and raised in Long Island, New York, and still lives there. I do, yes. How far away from where you grew up do you live? Uh, 15 minutes. That's awesome. Is your, is your family all still right around there? Yeah. Everybody's, everybody's within 20 minutes of each other. That's the fine. entire family. Yeah. So and then it's a large uh, family. Oh yeah. I, I was, I was watching something on uh, a, a previous interview and I saw that you've got a couple older brothers that uh, yeah. were into drums as well, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, cool. Yep. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. You, you've got a wife, and her name is—is is it Fabiana? Yes. And yeah. uh, son is Brady, and he's twelve years old. Yep. Is he into the drums? Yep. Oh, it's so fun. I <laughs> I got I got a two and a half year old son named Johnny at home, and uh, I bring him up here to my studio, and uh, I've got an electric uh, drum set, and uh, he's just starting to get into the fun of pounding around on shit. <laughs> nice so i'm, I'm hoping nice. he gets into it but we'll see I, I don't i don't want to force him but uh we'll see what happens yeah. and then they got a dog named roderick yes the boston terrier the madman <laughs> <laughs> so um like i said i saw you first and live from daryl's house uh quick question is is daryl's house only a tv show or is it uh can you go there and see live shows too, or how's that whole thing work? The well, the it, it used to just be a TV show or a webcast. Um, then it turned and went, and we used to shoot it at literally at his house. Then later on, when he sold his place where we used to record, he he bought a club, and now oh, really? the club, yeah, and the, the and he turned it into a. It's a really good restaurant and a live music venue. And it's called Live from Daryl's House. So you can, you, there's live music there five nights a week. Um, and but when we do our thing, um, there's no audience. But the other days of the week, it's open to the public. So now we just shoot it at the, we use that facility. And they even made the inside of it basically look like his house used to look. So that's the deal, Yeah. Well, that was confusing because I was like, I was like, I didn't know that anything changed. <laughs> you yeah. know, it looks like the old stuff where you guys used to shoot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the first it, we've been he, we've been shooting in the club since I think the last episode was 
maybe Gavin DeGraw. That might have been the last thing we did at his actual house. Every episode after that, maybe two or three seasons after that, have been in the club. Okay. And yeah. uh, what do you, are you guys doing any stuff during COVID, or what's going on there? The only thing we've done is we did a, we did a private event um, where we, we utilized the club as our stage, and we performed for a private company. And uh, we basically played, you know, we, we kind of, it was very short, like 40 minutes, just played like nine hits and that was it. And we literally were, Daryl was like looking at an iPad, uh, an iPad in front of us and we could see everybody's face up on the cat, up on the screen <laughs> so he can talk to them in between songs. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So that's it. That's been the only time I've played my drums outside of my house since last February 28th when we played Madison Square Garden. That's the last time I played the drums outside the house. So you go from Madison Square Garden to the basement. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's uh, so Ed, um, Ed Bauman, the guy that does all of the technical stuff for this, he's also my keyboard player in my band. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, we we did one live stream on Facebook uh, since COVID and it's the weirdest thing ever. It's like, you know, playing in front of a crowd and getting all the energy off the crowd and then playing a song and getting done and hearing crickets, <laughs> you know, and talking to yeah. the, the, the people that are on the uh, live stream and they're all typing stuff to you and you have to look at the messages. It's just weird. You know, it's so, so yeah, informal it and in- inhuman, really. It's just like you, you get so used to the, the energy from the crowd. It, it's got to be just... It, one of the weirdest things we've ever done. We haven't done it since because it was so strange. Yep. Yeah. So I love your facial expressions when you're playing. <laughs> you know, it's great, dude. It's like, it's like I, I'm kind of the way. So when I when I was playing from the time I was a kid, I always get this thing with my tongue and my lip and just like concentrating on when I'm playing. And I I always look yeah. at I always see that look on your face and just like you're into it. I love that shit. Ah, thank you. <laughs> Oftentimes, oftentimes during that show, you know, where 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 uh, it's really seat of the pants, man. It's not. There's not. There's not a lot of. There's no rehearsals. You know. There's no prep. It's just individual homework that we all do. Um, but like, so you guys are players. You know, when you play a song, if there's a live version of a song, there'll be the form will be changed then versus the recorded version and so on. And you know. Oftentimes we're just given the, you know, if we're doing like a song for uh, like, a, I don't know, an Aaron Neville song. When Aaron came, we would learn that we, I was given, you know, the original recording of a tune. Sometimes you luck out and they do it pretty much after, you know, even 40 years later, they do it the same way as the original recording. But oftentimes there at, at, at that point, there is some sort of live version. And, and we learn that that's what we learn on the spot. And we basically just talk it through and then we play and anything short of an absolute train wreck. We're basically told do not stop play. Once we start finish. And then if we need to discuss, we'll discuss something else. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, I'm kind of trying to look confident, but the reality is I'm horrified. <laughs> For real. That's well, it's a, it's a, it's you know, a we're, fun we're way adapting to, as we go. It's a fun way to play. You know, it's like, it's, it, some of the best stuff comes out of those jam sessions, I'm sure. It does. I, I mean, and I hand it to Daryl for having the guts to, to, to do that. Um, 
you know, the muso in me wants everything to be just mm, perfect. And, and the reality is, you know, he, I, you know, he has the wisdom to know and the guts to just say, we're going, we're going to play these tunes once or twice and we're going to live with it. And, 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 in, and in doing so, he's showing that he has a lot of confidence in us as a band too, that he's, I mean, it's the same thing with touring with Hall and Oates too. Those guys are, they like the, the excitement of being in the moment. So there's no rehearsals before we go out. We, can, we, you know, we, we, we won't see each other for weeks and weeks and weeks, and then we'll go out and play, do a TV show. There's no rehearsal. There's zero. It's like, what do we got to relearn this song? Well, we know what we're doing. And <laughs> that is so it. cool. Yeah. But it's a little scary at times. I'm not going to lie. But it's. Well, I was yeah. I was watching uh, just last week or two weeks ago. I was watching uh, Tommy Shaw's episode, and yeah. uh, you guys were playing Renegade, and uh, it was a little bit slower and a little bit groovier than the original version, and it sounded freaking awesome. I mean, all all the harmonies and everything. And uh, he nice. talked about it afterwards. He goes, "Yeah, I've never played it ever like that before." And he goes, "I really dug it. You know, it was it was really cool." You know, and the 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 amount of talent that's in that room is uh, pretty amazing because you guys are all just on top of your shit. It's great. Yeah, it's a really good band. I don't know if you know the the you know three four of us are average white band former average white band members. Oh, are you? Yeah, I did it for I I joined the band. Elliot, the keyboard player, he was first. He was the first one in it, and then he was there for quite a few years. I joined the band with Elliot, did it for a year and a half with him. He left. Then Clyde Jones, our bass player, he took over Elliot's spot. And by the way, just so you know, the spot that they were doing was lead vocalist, all the Hamish Stewart high stuff, and playing bass and guitar. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, there, so Elliot and Clyde are both full-fledged frontmen lead singers and bass players and guitar players. <laughs> and then... Um, I did the gig for maybe four and a half years with Clyde, and then I left, and then Clyde remained there for more years. And Porter, our percussionist, technically joined the band, wound up never doing a gig with them, but he was the first drummer that was asked to join that band after Ferroni left, after Steve Ferroni left the band many, many years ago. So who was, who was so, the first one to get with uh, Daryl and Hall and Oates? I mean, was, who was the... <laughs> Because usually that's the way it works, right? It's like one person gets in and like, hey, I know this guy. And then all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, that's a good question because I know that Elliot was definitely the first person out of any of us to be in Hall & Oates, for sure. Um, having said that, Clyde, before I knew Clyde, before any of us knew Clyde, Clyde knew T-Bone, the bass player, yep. the old MD. Yep. And he... Uh, when Clyde was very young, when he moved to New York, he would occasionally sub here and there for T-Bone on bass. Okay. And he would also, they used, they used to use Clyde as a background singer on Daryl's solo projects. So Clyde's been sort of part of the family for a long time, but he was never actually a member of the band. So Elliot's there the longest, then actually me, and then Clyde. And then Porter and Shane, so that's the order. That's but, cool. So Elliot's the first guy, yeah. So what? Uh, back in the day, what what got you into music? 
the, the earliest stuff I can remember is my brothers being teenagers listening to the two big ones were Ronnie Montrose. Oh yeah. Um, when Sammy Hagar was singing and, uh, and, uh, bad company and Zep, you know, those three. And that's the kind of stuff that was being played in my house. And I can also remember my sisters were big earth, wind and fire fans. And, you know, stuff changed really quickly around my house because my brothers, they got serious about music early, early on. So whatever also, they were into. Also playing drums or what were they playing? Yeah. My brother John was playing guitar and my older brother, oldest brother, Kevin, was playing drums. And uh, yeah, so there was always band rehearsals going on in the basement. So I was just around it a lot. And uh, but I was on the receiving end of like they when they got into something, they really got into it. So and they were into whatever they were into. I just followed like. My brother got into Shaka Khan. I was like, okay, I don't know who that is, but sure, I'll listen <laughs> to it. Or Stevie Wonder, you know, whatever it was. It was, I just followed suit, not knowing any better. So, so do they still play? They don't. They don't play. They don't it, play. My brother Kevin played for a pretty long time, but he's pretty much out of it now. He wound up becoming a school teacher, a music teacher. Okay. Um, and uh, now he's retired. And uh, he he turned his uh, creative juices into becoming uh, um, a woodworker. Oh, really? Which he's which he's unbelievable at too. <laughs> so it's it's uh, yeah, pretty cool. But yeah, him and my bro my brother John became a drummer by the time he was maybe in his late teens. He changed over to drums, and he did it for I don't know how many years. But at a certain point, you know, life real life came about like. They needed, they both needed to be making money and they, they didn't, they didn't pursue it. Uh, they didn't pursue it the same way I did. So, um, I don't know. I'm not sure. I mean, the love of music is there, but it just didn't, it didn't happen for them. Well, do you play any other instruments? Nope. Yeah. Just like me, I, I pick up guitars or I pick, I go over to a keyboard and I am lost. I, my, my brain yeah. doesn't work that way. You yeah, know, I know. It, it's like I can get it's all of, I can get all four appendages to do different things, but to sit down and yeah. play a chord, forget about it. Yeah. You, your parents had to be pretty freaking cool. You got all you guys making a bunch of noise and stuff. Tell me a little bit about yeah. tell me a little bit about growing up with your parents. My parents are like the 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 the, the most I shouldn't say typical. Uh let me put it this way. My dad, my, my dad is, my dad's parents were uh, born in Ireland. My mom's parents were born in Italy. They came to Brooklyn. <laughs> They're every stereotype in the book. <laughs> they had seven kids and my dad is a New York city fire firefighter. Oh, that's awesome. So it's like, Oh, they check every one of those boxes. <laughs> but um, having said that they were, they were super cool, man. Super supportive. Um, strict um compared to my friends i'm the youngest of seven so my parents were the age actually of most of my friends grandparents you know what i'm saying like my my sister is 15 years older than me okay so my parents were old for how old from for my age um and they kept a lot of their sort of old school uh uh you know their ways they had they were set in their ways you know 
but ha- even having said that, they were they were always open, and I know that they they evolved in terms of in terms of how strict they were. Because I know my bro- my sister tells me you have no idea how lucky you are right now <laughs> being the youngest. So. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, no, uh, but they were great. They were they were just super supportive. I love it. The the the, the yeah. older siblings are always like, "You have no clue. We they 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 took out all of their angst on us, and you got to do everything you wanted to." <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I'll tell you what they 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 were. Uh, I have to say, like even for me, when I left high school, I, I uh, I mean, I was going to go to college. It was just understood, right? Yeah, and um. But, you know, I could have gone to Berkeley or, you know, I, I could, there was colleges that I had an opportunity to go to and play. And I knew that my parents, it was, they were dying on the inside, like, just get an ed degree. You, who knows what's going to happen in a couple of years from now? At least you have it. And if you still, you can still do this other stuff you want to do, but like, you should really get the ed degree. But they never, they never, like, they weren't like this. They didn't forbid me. And, so I did it. I did. I did. I sort of, you know, I acquiesced to what I knew they really wanted. And I was just on a mission at that point. I'm like, okay, I'm going to do what they want. I'm going to get a music ed degree. And in four years, I'm going to be done. And I'm going to, and I'm never going to use it. I'm playing. That's <laughs> it. My mom was made up and I did it. And I'm That's still awesome. happy that I did it, you know, yeah. but that was more for them than it was for me. Cause I would have, if it were up to me more, I would have just, you know, I would have taken the path of doing the music school thing. But it all worked out, you know, it's like it uh, all totally worked out. Got to do. And and who knows if you wouldn't have went and done that, you might not be in the position you are today. Yep. You know, it's like uh, I I talked with uh, Josh Kelly. He's a a country singer. And uh, we were talking about all the different things that he, he calls it. All the different angels had to line up in a certain way for him to end up where he's at today. And it's so true for everybody. You know, it's like you can take a right turn at the wrong time. And all of a sudden yep. you are in the wrong place at the wrong time, you know? So, yep. you know, thank God for all those different moves. Are your parents still alive? My, no, just my mom. Okay. She's 88 and uh, killing it. Is she doing great? <laughs> yeah, she is. Is she staying she is. safe? Uh, is she scared of the COVID thing or how is she doing with that? She, uh, she's, uh, I think she might be scared. She doesn't show it though. Like she wants to like, she wants us to come over there. She wants to hug. And I'm like, ma, I can't do it. You know, like yeah. we try to, if it were up to her, she would, she would ignore it, but she's going with it. Cause like, I know for her, you know, things like things like Thanksgiving and Christmas, seeing the kids, seeing the, seeing the family and the little, and the whatever kids are left in the family. That's she lives for that. Yeah. And, and she did the right. She, she, you know, listen to all of us and we didn't have our usual gatherings on any of those holidays. So she's rolling with it. It, it feels really weird for her, but she's, she's rolling with it. I think she's happy that, it, that, that she, you know, we didn't take any chances. So how long ago and you she's moved? getting her shot today, by the way. Oh, today. That's awesome. Well, yeah. for everybody who's uh, watching this and listening to this, this is uh, January the 27th. So uh, this will be airing in uh, March. So uh, good luck to her, and I hope she. I've got plenty of friends who have gotten it so far, and uh, a sore arm is all I've heard for the first day, and after that, nothing. So, um, nice prayers for her to uh, get. Thank you. The antibodies she needs. So, when did you lose your dad? Uh, three years ago. 
Okay. So he yeah. got to go out and see you play some big shows and do all that kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and he used to come out, and man, even when he was like, wow, he must have been, yeah, in his late 70s, I played at this club in New York City called Cafe Wa. And it's basically an R&B club in a basement, little ratty little room um, with a great band and, you know, a place where you don't see people in their late 70s usually. And and he he would come down there and check it out. Like he was a real fan of just of music and to the bitter end, man, that guy would come out and see shows. So pretty he's amazing. Big, he's a big fan of his son doing awesome things. You know, it's like <laughs> I, I look back on my parents, mostly my mom, and uh, just all the support that she gave me. You know, it's like you talk about something. I, I'm talking about getting Johnny, my kid, a drum set. My wife's like, absolutely not. I'm like, well, it's going to happen. So forget about it. But all the time, my, my mom drove me to buy my first drum set in Rockford, Illinois. I grew up in a small town in Illinois to pick up the drum set in not such a nice area. You know, my used first Tama drum set. It came with like 12 cymbals. You know, I was in heaven, you know, setting this thing up. And then playing it all the time, you know, uh, parents have to put up with that, you know, when we have no clue what we're playing, you know, at the beginning, you know, yeah. and then all of a sudden it starts, even when it does turn into, we know what the hell we're doing for people that are sitting there listening to us play. It's, it's not a, it's not a great environment for your ears. <laughs> it sounds, it sounds amazing to us, but to them, oh my God, I can only imagine. Yeah, man. So talk about, uh, you, one of seven, um, you talked about your two older brothers. Are, are the rest of the um, siblings still around that same area where you live? Everybody's geographically, yeah. Everybody's here. That's everybody's so cool. Everybody's within 20 minutes of each other, yeah. And you guys are all yep. super close? Yeah. So uh, were, were you a good student? Uh, kind of. I was a good navigator. Like I did well, I got good grades, um, more so because I kind of figured out how to, not that I was extra studious, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, there was like, I knew again, I guess it goes to my parents, like, you know, getting good grades was part of the package in our house. Right. So I did whatever I needed to do to accomplish that, but I didn't, I didn't go beyond, <laughs> but I would, I, you know, I was, I was, uh, I did well, I'll tell you what, I did way better. In, I did better in college than I did in, 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 and I did pretty well in high school. where do you go to college? I went to, I went to a community college on Long Island, NASA community college for two years. And then I went to uh, Long Island university um, and got a bachelor's in music, music education. Oh, so you're, you're studying music. So, I mean, it's like for, for me, um, I was a, a terrible student, you know, it's just like when it came to music and choir and all the things that I was interested in A's across the board, but other things I wasn't interested in, I was just like, I, I, I could barely have enough time for it. I wanted to, I was uh, thinking about yeah. other things that once I got into, uh, um, later education, things that I was interested in, good to go. But it's like when, when you're actually yeah studying and interested in something in school. Yeah. I think it's an yep. ease. Yeah. Do you remember your first paying gig? Uh, and how old were you? I think, I think 
Yeah, I think the first paying gig for me was I joined a wedding band when I was 14. And my father used to drive me on the weekend to the gigs. That's when it started, playing in a wedding band. And I think 14, yeah, 14. Because I was pretty young for my grade, so I was 16 at the beginning of my senior year of high school. Okay. And I was definitely gigging in in 10th grade. So I was 14, yeah, when it started. So how how much were you making for a, a wedding gig? Man, the money was amazing. Uh, wedding gigs in New York is it's it's like the bread and butter of mo- of most musicians. Uh, so at the time, probably probably a Saturday f- wedding, four hours. It was probably two hundred and fifty bucks at the time. Oh yeah, fourteen years old, you're killing it. Yeah. Yeah. For, for, I mean, I, and, and I wound up and in those days, wedding bands, there's so many wedding bands now in those days, if you were even in a halfway decent wedding band, you did a hundred, you did at least a hundred gigs a year. And that was only on the weekend. Right. So by the time I was, by the time college started, by the, you know, within three years of that time, I was making probably three fifty a gig. And I was doing basically two of them every weekend. And I had nothing else to do all week. <laughs> yeah. So going to school, like I was, I wasn't rich, but like I was making money. Like I had, I was making more money than most kids that had a job and going to school. You know what I mean? Exactly. So it was in a, yeah, really, really good. Oh, I love it. <laughs> it. It brings back a memory when I was, uh, it was my senior prom. I ended up going and playing in a band instead of going to my senior prom. And then I went to the post prom afterwards. So it was, uh, <laughs> It was amazing, you know, so I awesome. went and I, I remember I, I sat, I was playing at this place in Savannah, Illinois called Canavan's Pub and literally I am 17, 18 years old, whatever it was. Everybody else I'm playing with, it's a jazz polka, polka waltz band type thing, right? And everybody else I'm playing in is 60, 70 years old. They had this uh, trumpet player and he looked just like Doc Severinsen and he played like Doc Severinsen too. It was so much fun. I'm sitting back there in the back and I'm drinking a beer. I'm like, this is amazing. Didn't have to rent a tux. <laughs> you know? And, you know, I went to the post prom afterwards and had fun with everybody else. It just, it, it was, it was a win-win situation all the way around. Nice. Nice. I got to say for me, there were many weekends where I was hating that I was doing it because it was a lot of times Friday night and Saturday night. I w- I couldn't hang out with my friends. And when you're 17, it's like, I got to go. To w- I'm going to work. Like, right. you're what? What do you mean you're going to work? So it was a, it, at times it was a bit of a drag. And, I, and also, to be honest, I actually wasn't really serious about this really until I got to college. So, like, I was playing very young and I was playing pretty sophisticated music. I mean, I was playing to the Rush Hemispheres record. I was, pl- I was learning the, the song, The Trees, when I was in sixth grade. And, and so you would think that's, wow, he must have been really into it. I wasn't. I was like, yeah, I hear it. And I would just play along. And, and I felt like certain things kind of came a little easy. And I always was played snare drum, you know, repertoire for like this thing called NISMA where you play, you prepare a snare drum piece and you get graded by an adjudicator. And, um, I, I play, I sort of played the game throughout school, but I, I wasn't really like, 
I didn't know really what good was. I knew that I was good for like where I was from, but I didn't really know like I didn't realize how many aliens there are out there that can really do it. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it wasn't until basically like halfway through my senior year of high school that I even really start to say, you know what? I need to actually get see. I need to. I have to practice. Yeah. And that's when I got crazy about practicing, like yeah. spending ridiculous amounts of time. So how how so, many hours a day would you practice? I mean, there was a time period where. It started like the summer after high school before my first semester of college, um, part, and mostly because it was the summer. I would basically, I don't know, it, it was definitely eight to 10 hours a day because I would basically get up, eat breakfast, practice until lunch, practice till dinner, practice till nine o'clock at night. Like that was the cutoff point in our house, like nothing after nine. You can do anything you want. You could just stand down there and slam a snare drum <laughs> nonstop and no one's going to say a word ever. Nine o'clock. That's when my parents just made the cutoff for the neighbor's sake. So they didn't, so no one bombed their house. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, they, the, it, there was a time period where I got crazy about practicing. And part of it was luckily for me, I live, I I've always lived basically an hour from Manhattan. And as a musician, it's a pretty amazing place to live. And I would go in and I started seeing, I saw people that were like my age that were frighteningly good that I never heard of. And I'm like, oh my God. So if I really want to do this, I obviously need to work way harder. And so it was, I had a couple of real eye-opening experiences that set me straight and it was like, you got to work on your stuff way more. So. I had one of those experiences. I was playing in a band and uh, my ego had taken over and uh, I was, I was at a party with the guitar player, Tommy, and uh, I'm sitting there, I'm bragging about something. I'm not sure what it was. And uh, Tommy goes, Hey, let's go outside and talk for a second. And uh, he goes, Hey, you're about to get fired from the band. Um, you need to work on your time and uh, this and this and this. I'm like sitting there, I'm like, talk about ego deflation, right? But Thank God he did that because I sat down and I practiced and practiced and practiced, had a metronome and just sat there and figured out what the hell I needed to do. <clears throat> and within about six months, I became just a, so much of a better musician and drummer and a better bandmate, you know, for these guys who had given me a chance. Cause I, I didn't grow up where you grew up. I grew up in a small little ass town in Northwest Illinois and for me to be in this band was just like, it was my ticket out, you know? So for me to treat it like it was uh, nothing special was just stupid on my part. And thank God for Tommy stepping up and going, hey, you're about to get fired. Because it really changed my life and it led me to the rest of my life after that. You know, talking about those uh -huh. angels that have to line up. Tommy was one of those angels that was like the angel of darkness that day that said, you're about to get fired, dickhead. <laughs> Uh-oh. That's funny. Now, do you read music? Yes. And uh, so is it is it just drum tabs or do you read everything? So when you say you read I mean, music. Well, yeah, I mean, when I went to college, I, I was, I played, I played, I played all the mallet instruments, you know, marimba, and I played timpani. Um, I mean, basically through college, it was only classical percussion for me. Okay. Um, 
and I took and I had to take lessons on all the instruments in instrumental band because I'm sure I would you know I guess technically I'm certified to teach K through twelve instrumental band which is all the instruments. Okay. So I had to take clarinet lessons, flute lessons, you know. So the uh, so yes, I can read I can read melody and and I I have a very very minuscule right now it's probably all gone but when I was in college you know I had to take keyboard harmony so I understood how chords work to a certain degree we would learn Bach harmony so I, I wasn't I wasn't I, I never learned about jazz harmony and they call chords different names than with Bach harmony it's all the same stuff but they have different ways of the lingo is different okay um so yeah I mean I ha- and I've always read like snare drum music so if you can read a if you can read a uh you know, a pretty high level classical snare drum solo, for instance, there's nothing that you're going to see in a drum chart that's going to be more difficult than that. Where it's going to be more difficult to play the drum chart is with drum charts, usually the beat you play, that's not what's there. You know, what's there is usually an outline of the form of the song and and they may there may be like some 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 hits that the trumpet player is going to play. So it's your job as the drummer to see that come in, play a fill to set up that figure, and and play that figure with them. For instance, okay. So in that case, you got to be able to read that specific rhythm. But usually, drum charts for set are very sparse. There's not a lot of ink on the page. So I came from playing playing rudimental and classical snare drum from when I was very young. So my reading was really my reading was. Uh, I became a better player. But literally, my reading ability was, uh, you know, by the time I was in sixth or seventh grade, I was reading the same stuff when I was in college. Wow, that's my brother, amazing. My, my brother just hit me with stuff when I was really young. And I was doing some of the same stuff with my teacher in college that my brother was doing with me when I was in sixth grade. Only be, the, 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 it, it was in college, the guy was going to be way more demanding on how I was articulating and playing, but same stuff. So I wasn't learning anything new. We said it before, you have a recording studio in your house. Yeah. So when you um, get something sent to you, do you use Pro Tools or what do you use? I use Pro Tools. So do you just get the Pro Tools file sent to you with some kind of a chart or does someone talk to you about what they're looking for? How does that whole thing go down? 90% of the time, it's just, I want to talk to the person about what they're looking for. Um, some people send charts and I tend to not use them um, because I'm going to, I spend a lot of time on, on everything I do. I'm never in a rush to just get it done. I mean, if you have a chart and it's written well, you can get through a song that you don't even know and you might even be able to get a good enough pass, but I need to, I like to play something a bunch of times. And so even with the chart through osmosis, I start learning it anyway. So I'm at the point now where unless it's like some crazy thing and I don't have a lot of time, I like to just use my ears. Even though I have the ability to read it, I, I'll always, I always opt to stay away from the paper. And nowadays, the other thing that's become the new norm is everybody wants you to set up your camera and record yourself video video yourself while you're playing their song because everything is visual now so now the days of going down here like looking like an absolute slob and (laughs) loving it and just playing a track 
Now I have to play the track a hundred times and then say, okay, I think I'm ready for one now. Set up the phone and like video myself doing it. Great. Now I got to take a shower. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Unless Unless it's a hard rock song, then you don't shower at all. You do whatever you want to. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's, 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 you know, I have to say, I mean, I understand why, like for me, if I were 20 years old and I heard a recording that Vinnie Caliuta was playing drums on and I had the option to see it, of course I want to see it, you know? So I get it. It's just, it takes away from, for me, it doesn't take away. It makes it a little more difficult because you have that camera, you know, that camera's there and I don't want to be cognizant of that. Right. And you would think at this point I'd get used to having a camera on me because i have a camera on me all the time but it's still that one thing extra and it's like i don't want that there i want to just concentrate on the you know you're right about it because something else takes off and there's always that thing in the back of your mind that you're being watched and that there's a different feeling so i I, when i've recorded and sat there and it's just me and the other band members and we're just recording with nobody else there's a whole different feel so i I know what you're talking about so, um, what was your first big break? You know, it's like you're playing a wedding band, you're doing all the rest of this stuff. When's the first time that you went out and played with somebody? And you said, "Oh man, this is amazing." It's see, it's hard. It's hard to answer because I know the first couple of things that led me to more serious people. Um, and there was a guy out out where I live in Long Island. His name is Ted Kumpel. He was a guitar player, and he was probably the first guy that when he asked me to play with him i had already sort of like i thought he was an amazing player and i was intimidated and i couldn't believe he wanted me to play with him you know what i'm saying and i knew that this guy tony Shear played bass in his band and and andy middleton these guys are like these are the guys that i was like following you know if you were a musician in the know in the new york area in the late 80s these guys were like you know the baddest right or some of the baddest and um so that's one layer of thinking that i this is awesome and maybe i'm i'm doing something right right right? that's the first thing other than that though i mean with the wedding thing i mean with those guys that was the first time i ever like it's the first time i ever left the country and we went to europe and it was like a fusion it was like the music was like frank zappa meets prince like the crazy comedy of and and intricacies of zappa mixed with sort of the some of the funk of what prince brings so it was an amazing musically it was amazing stuff and for me it was the one of the best uh, learning experiences because i was easily the weakest link so i got i was getting my butt handed to me every single time i was around these guys which proved to be awesome for me you know um and then the other thing was is this guy named david mann who was a great uh, sax player lives in New York. Um, he used to play with tower of power. Um, and he, he, well, he plays with everybody. It's crazy, but he kind of recognized, he liked what he heard on a wedding. And next thing I knew I was recording with him and his brother, who was a, who was a great bass player. And, and that got me into the world of the more kind of smooth jazz world with the, like the jazz guitar player, Chuck Loeb. Um, and Chuck's really the guy that that was the first real serious national artist super respected guy that every single thing in my life can be tied in some way to him 
So that's that's where it kind of started for me with Chuck, probably. And did uh, did Chuck see you somewhere, or did you go in an audition, or how, how did that uh, come nope. about? Chuck got me. I mean, partially because of that guy, Dave Mann. Okay. Everything's super intertwined, um, and and then the and the and the keyboard player, like some of the guys that were in Chuck's band, I knew them. I lived. I was living in Brooklyn. And I just first moved to Brooklyn and I was already playing with some of the guys that play with Chuck. So it just made sense. You know, this guy knows this guy. Oh, I right. have a friend and this the usual thing. Yeah. Um, but Chuck is a guy that carries weight. You know, Chuck played with the, with, with Michael and Randy Brecker all the time, for instance. Yeah. Right. So, and he was in the band steps ahead. He was the guitar player for the band steps ahead with Michael Brecker. So yeah, he was, he was a real heavy, you know, so for someone who was 22 at the time, that was a, it was a huge deal for me. Oh yeah. You know, it is huge. It's like all of a sudden, all of this hard work starts to pay off and, uh, you go from not really like when you were younger, not really caring about it so much or not really concentrating on it so much to all of a sudden working your ass off and then you arrive to uh, get to go out and do these amazing things. And that's what it comes down to. And that's a big thing about the True Ambition podcast is digging in to see what steps and what kind of hard work. And it always comes down to hard work that people had to do. And it always comes back to busting your ass. Nothing's for free. Go out there and do it. And then all of a sudden, oh, luck happened. No, luck didn't happen. (laughs) Hard work happened. And then good luck takes over. And uh, you're able to go out and, you know, play, play with, you know, musicians, you know, and get out there and do what you want to do uh, because you deserve it. So um, who's your favorite drummer? Oh, it's a big question. I don't I know. I don't have one, man, because I, I because for me, when you cross genres, it's really hard. Um, Who, who's your favorite jazz drummer? I would have to say Tony Williams. Okay. Yeah. If I and I hate even picking one, but if I if ha- have to, probably Tony. Favorite rock drummer. Bonham. Oh yeah. Yeah, me too. Bonham. I mean, I'm a huge Tool fan. Danny Carey just blows my mind with some of the stuff he does. But I mean, everybody comes back to Bonham. I mean, it's just it, I, yeah. there's there's still stuff that I sit down and try to figure out. I just can't do it. <laughs> you know. It's ridiculous some of the things he did with one foot. Sure. You're endorsed by Vic Firth. I know that for sure. I saw that. Who, who else are you endorsed by? Um, Evans, Drumheads, Sabian Cymbals, and DW Drums. What size uh, sticks do you usually use? They're called AJ1. It's basically, a, it's like a 5B, but at the top of the stick, it's... Uh, it, it's very tapered, so it's not as heavy at the tip, and the okay. tip is a little smaller. So it's kind of the girth and weight of a 5B, but it's very kind of light and pretty sounding for cymbals at the top end. Uh, nylon tips? Nylon they're tips wood or tip, wood? Wood tip? Wood. And they're super rigid. There's zero elasticity or bend in them, which I love because I, 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 I play with a lot of – I need rebound. So – and and for me too the the with recording I just they they help me big time and I want to mention something 
I just got an endorsement with Biodynamic Microphones. Oh, cool. Which has been amazing for my studio. And they've been super cool to me. And just to let you know, speaking of John Bonham, the 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 Biodynamic M160 ribbon mic, those are the two microphones used for when the levee breaks. <laughs> oh. They're the mics they hung over his kit in the stairwell when he recorded that song. That groove, That's the man. sound. That, 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 when, that, <laughs> when that groove comes in for that song, you just can't help it going, oh, yep, uh-huh, here we go. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So you use a traditional grip. Yeah. Um, have you, from time you're a kid, used it or just chose to use it? Or kind of talk about the use of traditional grip a little bit. My, it's what my brother showed me. Okay. And I literally never played match grip in my life like to the point where if i am playing a beat just a medium tempo rock groove or r&b groove and if beat two is a rim click and beat four is a snare and it's going back and forth i will flip my stick completely around every single time <laughs> just to hit it once with this versus this <laughs> M- muscle memory yeah i mean that's the thing that's the fear i can play match a little um but I'm so afraid of 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 not hitting it right because I, I have no muscle memory that I can get it sometimes, but sometimes I won't, and I, I can't afford to not get it. So, and I'm and I'm not willing to practice. I don't want to put time into learning another grip. I mean, this is working for me, and there's I have to also admit though there are things about certain styles of music where I I can play loud and I can hit the snare drum really hard this way. Where I have a problem getting a lot out of the, out of the drums is like hitting a floor tom across your body with a traditional grip. That's hard to get some like meat out of a drum. This would make life much easier for me, but I'm not willing to 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 now. And, and the funny thing is, this is really rare. So it's almost like it's rare you know, these days. Was, now these days it's rare. I mean, there are still some you know, mega, like in terms of drummers, like star drummers. I mean, Vinny still plays this way and Weckl plays this way and Steve Jordan and Steve Ferroni. Like actually some of my favorite players play, you know, Charlie Drayton. These guys still play traditional grip. Um, but a lot of them can play both. Well, isn't it, to, isn't it so much better playing traditionally? Because I started traditional until I got to like the sixth grade and then my yeah. drum, my music teacher, said, no, no, this is the way we do it now. And I switched over from traditional to um, the, what's that called? Straight grip? Match grip. Match grip. And uh, I've been playing that way ever since. But I I started off that way. Isn't it better for like ghost notes and stuff like that to have the traditional grip? You know, I I used to think so. Um, But when I see guys like Bill Stewart playing jazz and and I hear what he's doing and I hear, you know, guys that are playing match and, and not just rock guys, like real straight ahead players. Um, it's one, I don't think, I don't think it's better than traditional. It's just, it, they're both. Yeah, they're different. And you can, you can accomplish anything you want with either one of them. Um, but I, the one thing I think that where match is, 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 is not better, but probably makes life easier is if you need to get some thunder, out of toms that's tough 
Because yeah. this requires this this grip is really needs rebound. You need to get something back. Right. Um and and also I was told, I never knew this, uh Porter Carroll, the percussionist in our band and the Hall and Oates band, he told me that this movement you're you are you are using you're using um just a you're using now I don't remember how it goes. You're either using just a handful of muscles, and this way you're using a, a a ton of muscles, or the opposite. I'm not sure which it is, but this this movement is, you know, it just it, it like you said, it lends itself to touch. Sticks bouncing around. You can play kind of delicate. Some people that play match, as soon as you put you ask them to play some jazz, if they can play this way, they'll always opt for it because you feel like you're playing more jazzy when you do this somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? But the truth is, I think both are fine. It's just my personal dilemma is getting some some beef out of that floor time when I'm crossing over this way. Yeah. And it's like, man, sometimes I wish I played this way. And like I said, playing rim click grooves and coming up to the, hit the snare drum, I mean, this this is so easy. Then flipping that thing over every time, it's like, <laughs> uh. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm, I have other things to work on. So, I mean, I'm still trying to, I'm still trying to like, I'm still practicing. So I'm still trying to get, keep my, my level up because the younger generation, what they're doing on this instrument is insane. What's well, pretty amazing. Um, the technology now with YouTube and everything else, there's so many different places. There's some of the stuff that I wish I could have seen back in the day, just so I could figure out like, Play, playing the, the, the opening or the drums for the Rosanna by Toto, you know, just like that, the, the Bo, Bo Diddley beat going along with the weird ghost notes and everything that he was doing. I just couldn't figure it out. And then I watch it. I'm like, oh, that's what he's doing, <laughs> you know, but yeah. today you can watch it and then all of a sudden you can figure it out and then you can build that muscle memory by figuring out how to do something. And yeah. now they do it like half time so you can really figure it out. It's really I can only imagine where the technology and the the things are going to go in the future, like you said, with what what the kids are given today to learn the instruments. It's amazing. The one thing I'll say is, physically speaking, technically speaking, the 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 our instrument, meaning the the drums, it's still it's still growing at like an alarming rate because there are things that guys are doing and girls are doing that. 10 years ago where it would be unimaginable. Like it would be a gag. It'd be like trickery or something. Wizardry. <laughs> what is this? wizardry? <laughs> but, yeah. but you're scaring uh, the hell out of the kids. <laughs> yeah, no, but the, the, yeah, it's, it's, it's that absurd. And you know, not, not every instrument is like that. I mean, cause some people, I would argue that, you know, technically speaking, are guys really playing, you know, the saxophone technically that much better than Charlie Parker did, you know, I right. don't know, maybe Michael Brecker, maybe, maybe Chris Potter or, or I don't know, Josh Redman, whoever the great tenor players are of the day. Now, uh, I'm sure maybe, maybe they have, it has graduated, but like at the rate that the drums are still moving, it's, it's absurd. Cause it's, you know, when you, you ever check out Chris Coleman, Oh yeah. Oh my God. I mean, it's some of the stuff he's doing with the power that he's, that's the other thing it used to be in the, in the old days, if you were someone who played like, 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 like the metal drummers, like the speed metal drummers, 
as as there's as that stuff started to become more and more intense and they were able to play faster and faster you notice how everything got smaller and smaller they're barely moving now yeah because they're playing so fast right then chris coleman comes along and he's playing as fast or faster and he's coming from this high with every stroke it's like it doesn't even make sense what this guy's doing i remember when uh one from metallica came out and i remember (laughs) lars doing that I'm like, oh my god, how's he doing that? And now people play a whole song with the bass drums yeah. going that fast. Absolutely. I'm like, yeah, it's what? crazy. Yeah, yeah. Now, having said that, as much as that's to be commended, the one thing that's changing, and I, I'm not, I'm not here to say it's for the better or the worse. It's just something. It's just an observation for me. Um, the role of the drums is starting to change in that. We used to be the timekeeper, of even for, obviously for the for the singer, but even for the for the rhythm section. Right. We were the we were the one. We were the, we used to be the person that sort of laid the law down, and and if you did it in a confident, consistent way, it would allow the people around you to do what they do with time. Maybe you play. Maybe the bass player wants to be very elastic and he wants to really play behind the beat. Now your job is not to pull back with him your job is to stay right where you are right so that he can put it where he wants it and then together what comes out out there is a feel is a thing and now you know it's like now that because the drums are it's so fabulous what these people can do meaning drummers now it's so crazy that they're stepping out and they're taking it to another level but w- what's also happening with that is now the rest of the band is being expected to keep the time for the drummer. <laughs> and now you go to see, you know, you go to see a pop concert now, you're going to hear a huge bass drum and a huge clap track in virtually every song. Boom, clap, boom, clap. and then the drummer will be playing with it, but then when they go to do their thing, you're still hearing that that 1 and 3 and 2 and 4 and you're not even cognizant of it. Right. But it's there. And it's there to keep the meat going while these guys play all this insane stuff. But now that's changing the role of what you're, what drummers used to do. Yeah. Now, whether that's good or bad, that's up for debate. I don't, you know, it's not for me to say, but I come from a, I, I come from possibly the last generation where it was like, I want to play and I, and I prefer to hear drummers that play, play pocket. And if you're good enough, and and if you're if you're, uh, I, I don't want to say musical, but if you're uh, creative enough, you have moments where you want to, you want people to go, whoa! You want to give a little moment, you want to play a fill, you want to make someone like think twice about what they just heard. Great, all the power to you, but it's still up to you to hold the time. Exactly, not the machine you're playing along with. People throw and and that's the, and, and I'll summon a lot. The last thing I'll say is this: I know I'm long-winded. Now kids are playing to tracks. Everything we hear and everything we practice to is perfect because everything is most of this stuff is programmed in popular music. Right. So people's sense of time and sense of pitch is really pretty amazing. So now, where a lot of people may argue, pop music has kind of gone downhill in terms of quality. Again, that's up to opinion. I happen to think that pop music in the 70s is far superior, but that's just my opinion. But I will say this, 
the stuff they would let people get away with in the 70s is pretty remarkable in, in, in terms of stuff was at a pitch, stuff wasn't played to a click. Right. Things were inconsistent. You know, now you put on a pop record. I don't care who the artist is. That's going to be metronomically perfect. There's going to be auto tune. The pitch is going to be perfect. And entire generations, that's all they're hearing. And you know what? They're they're achieving it now (laughs) as humans. They're playing in a way that's like perfect. (laughs) So in some ways, the the, the bar keeps going up. But musically speaking, ah, I don't know. No, one of my favorite things to do is with really great bass players is to have that um, relationship with that bass player where you as the rhythm section can just look at each other and know exactly where you're going, know exactly what you're doing. And it's just so much fun to have that relationship and to, you know, kind of create what you want to on the fly. You know, mm-hmm. and that that kind of gets we we as a band right now we play along with a track. You know, we play '80s stuff. You know, we wouldn't even have a bass player because uh, we've had a couple different bass players that were a pain in the ass. We said, "All right, you're out of here." <laughs> so now we've got uh, you know we just you know as drummers we sit there and we play along with the tracks and it's it's all good. We're we're, we're entertainers, but to lose out on some of that, um, you know. It lets the band breathe a little bit, you know, and gives it a life of its own where you have a little bit of that danger involved too, where, you know, with what you're talking about, there's not much danger, except I went and saw Motley Crue about uh, three or four years ago up in Reno, Nevada. They were playing along with the track (laughs) and the band got lost. All four of them got lost and they all four, they all four. Chain, they all four ended the song at a different time. I think they were playing Wild Side. It was the best. So Alice Cooper opened up for him, and Alice Cooper was amazing. And uh, Alice Cooper had gone out <coughs> golfing. His, that drummer's that drummer's. Really oh good. my god, so good! And that guitar player, that female guitar player. Oh my god! So Alice Cooper's golfing earlier in the day with a friend of mine who's a casino host up there, and Alice said. Those four guys in Molly Crew absolutely hate each other. <laughs> and they're only doing it for the money. So we went and watched Alice Cooper and we're waiting for Molly Crew to get out there. And they play like the fourth song is Wild Side. And they all end at different times. <laughs> and you can tell, because we were really close to the stage, they all just turned around and looked at each other and all were just like, I hate you. <laughs> I don't want to be here right now. <laughs> so we left, you know. And that was one of those things where Nobody else, I know somebody else noticed, but hardly anybody else noticed. It was just like they were there for the party. They didn't care. But me as a musician, I was like, come on, guys, you're Motley Crew. You're supposed to be, you know, in this for like the last 30 years. Get your shit together. But it was, it was, it's a story that I've got for the rest of my life that I saw Motley Crew fall apart. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. That's funny. So I got a couple more questions for you here. Um, now, speaking of kind of uh, playing traditionally with a band, now do uh, Daryl and John expect things to be played a certain way, or do they give you room to improvise? Uh, they totally give us room. Totally give us room. Um, I mean, the truth is they – this, this our band it's really a band of 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 pros i mean and guys like john and daryl wouldn't have it any other way um 
but they, you know, the reality is like the people in this band, every to a man, everybody there can play more technically demanding music if it were if we, if it were, if we were forced to or given the opportunity to whatever. Um, but everybody play the song the song rules, and everybody's motto is the same in this band. You, you're playing this you, this is the genre we're playing, this is the song you're playing. You play what the song needs. And then whatever flavor, individual flavor you want to add to that while keeping the song a number one. A lot of people say they do that and they don't. Right. right? And this band, this is a band made up of people that they, everybody does that in this band. Um, you can go see this band and you may think that guitar player is great. And you have no idea what else that dude is capable of. Right. And that's the mark of a real monster. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. So, um, and because John and Daryl <laughs> recognize that. Yeah. They don't tell, they don't really tell us anything. <laughs> and if you play something different one night, it's more like turn around, like, Oh, cool. It's never, it's, it's the opposite of a very tight, rigid system. It's the opposite. It's really great. We're super lucky. And I'll say one other thing about those guys. If a blunder happens, doesn't mean a thing. There's zero pressure. It's like, what happened? Like, you know, oh, someone made a mistake. Okay, well, it's history now. What are we even talking about? That's you know, they, awesome. They's, they're amazing. They're amazing. And, uh, and it makes for a, a really comfortable situation. They know if someone messes up, it's like no one's happy about it, especially the guy who did it. And, you know, we've proven ourselves to, to, to be reliable. So now, yeah, they don't, they don't sweat it. And Daryl really is into being spontaneous. He really is, you know, um, I mean, you know what they both are. John is too. And John is like a the consummate musician too. Like John's like, John's still practicing. Like th these dudes are like, you know, I don't look at them this way, but like, these are like rock stars, right? No, these guys are and legends. Yes, yeah. And, and you know, John doesn't need to ever do anything, right? But he's still in his room just playing the guitar. I just had a love of music, listening to, listening to new people all the time. Just he's still 100% in it and trying to get better. You know what I mean? So it's, it's pretty awesome to see. Did you have uh, one of the Daryl's House episodes that just stands out as like your favorite, like the one that you had the most fun? Uh, I, I, I got to give you just a, uh, just maybe two or three. Sure. That, that always come to my mind. Um, overall, as a show, and, the, and for me, the, to me, the Joe Walsh show was really good. That was awesome. Um, I, I thought there was something about him that I really dug. Um, I just dug his aura. Everything was just he was he was super bad um and i really thought that grace potter was great um and gavin degraw was a good one for me and the, and then there was the our version of uh, no can do with CeeLo. oh yeah um that's a good that was a good performance especially that tune and a lot of people are aware of that, that oh yeah so good that turned out to be a, a good a nice thing for all of us too. So it turned out, I mean, we play the song live more like that than it, it used to ever be played. 
with Hall and Oates. You know what I'm saying? Well, so, CeeLo's episode was so good. I was just, uh, all I knew about him was his couple songs. And then he gets, uh, that, that, that whole episode was great. Yeah. And then, of course, the OJ. I can't leave out the OJs because, like, playing Money, Money, Money oh, yeah. with the OJs as a drummer. <laughs> like, what? Insane. <laughs> now, you, you turned me on to uh, Michael Brecker and the Brecker Brothers. And uh, I talked to you a little bit before the podcast, and I went down such a wormhole yesterday. This guy, Michael Brecker, played on everything with everybody. You know, I looked into yes. his Wikipedia. It's ridiculous. Yep. I mean, it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of songs. And, you know, that's only Wikipedia, so I'm sure there's more than that. But yeah. uh, I went and watched the, this song, Some Skunk Funk, just blew my mind. I listened to like four, four different versions of it all live <laughs> and it's just unbelievable yeah and how, how did how did you come across that stuff did you did you ever play with him i did i i mean i never played in his band but we played uh we, i did a week at the blue note with chuck Loeb, and he was the guest soloist so i got to do that with him and i got to play on a record by a, a great jazz bass player named mike pope um he did his own solo record and he hired randy and michael both to play on it and and i was in his band at that point when he hired those guys um and in terms of me discovering who the brecker brothers are you know that comes from my brothers you know my brothers they went from like listening to the to the bad company stuff to to swiftly to the r&b world and all the great r&b music that was going on and and then it then they moved into the fusion stuff and that's where we discovered brecker i mean probably steve gadd is the the real reason why i came to know who brecker is because my brother became a steve gadd fan and when you become a steve gadd fan in the late 80s it's like okay you just got to buy records that steve's on so that means you if you if you're following steve gadd that means you wind up figuring out who al Jarreau is who steely dan is who, cause he's the drummer on all this stuff. Right. Yeah. And then you start to see the names and you start to see the same names. Like who's this tenor player, Michael Brecker. Oh, he's on this record too. He's on this record too. And then you realize like the same guy that plays a sax solo on a James Taylor song plays the sax solo on a cameo tune, like the song candy that yeah. solo that's Michael Brecker. Right. <laughs> and then you find out he's a straight ahead jazz player. And he's a fusion player who has a band with his brother called the Brecker Brothers. And then you start to realize the, the guy's like a game changer, you know, yeah. in terms of like, there are guys that play jazz saxophone when he was, you know, in his day, his, his contemporaries, his age at that time, there were other guys, Steve Grossman, and there were guys of, you know, I, I there's a million guys I can, I can, I, I, I don't want to bring up all their names, but the thing about Brecker that was different is he was playing he was firmly respected in the jazz world, in the real jazz world. And then he was playing on James Taylor records. And that's, that's huge to me. And that's for me, I was brought up with a brother who was into the guys that were able to cover more than just one genre. And we were fans of music. We weren't fans of one genre of music, you know? So, um, you know, we used to look at the David Letterman band with Steve Jordan and Will Lee playing bass. And we, those were, that was the ultimate, like growing up, that was the ultimate gig. It wasn't playing Madison Square Garden for me. Never, never. It was like either playing the Blue Note or getting a gig like the David Letterman band and being able to play with all these different artists, 
And in a really ironic way, I wound up doing something kind of similar, having Daryl's house. It's like unimaginable. What else? Who else is doing that? Who else has that? What other music show is there even in existence? Oh, no, that, that's I mean? why that's why I love it's it so crazy. much. crazy. Because I get to watch each and every type of performer from all these different genres go on there and play with you guys. And it's what we talked about before is like, you're talking about Brecker playing on all these different genres and all he's doing is serving the song, you know, and that that's the name of the game. You know, it's just like for me, my true ambition in life is to make others, people's lives better. And as a musician, that's all we're really doing is making somebody's day a little bit brighter by giving them something they wouldn't have had otherwise. And, uh, you know, that's, that's one of the best things in the world is putting a smile on somebody else's face. So, um, I'm going to end the podcast with the same questions that I ask everybody on the true ambition podcast. So I appreciate you being here. Um, and what I'm going to do is ask you right now, being where you've been, You've done a lot of things. You've played all over the world. True ambition is not what we thought it was. True ambition is the profound, profound desire to live usefully and walk humbly under the grace of God. Knowing what you know now, what is your true ambition in both your professional life and your personal life moving forward? Well, for my personal life, it's to you know, first and foremost, be, be a a good father and husband to my wife and son. Um, and professionally, um, you know, I don't know if, if I, uh, if this is the right answer or not, but, um, there's no wrong answers. No wrong answers. I've never been, okay, well, good. Cause (laughs) I've never been, uh, I'd be lying if I didn't say that I don't, I don't, if I, if I make a nice amount of money, that's, that's good, but that's never ever. And still is not the the driving force behind what I've done. Um, I just, I don't know if it's a curse or so far it's been a blessing for me, but I'm just constantly trying to get better. And, 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 and in that, that has led me to doing you know, being a part of some nice things musically, um, and professionally, it's all interconnected. So, um, yeah, it's hard for me to say like in five years from now, I would like to be making a certain amount of money doing sessions so that I don't have to be on the road anymore. Like I don't really still, I probably should, but I don't really have a plan. I'm just constantly trying to get better and everything is still to this day on an upward slope professionally for me. So I'm just going to keep at it. Perfect. So that's my, that's my plan. That's it. I think that, uh, if we all just keep doing the next right thing and, uh, keep moving in the right direction, everything else will be delivered to us, you know? So, uh, I really appreciate you being here today. It's been a fun conversation and, uh, likewise, man, I will, uh, uh, is there any uh, upcoming dates or anything being scheduled or is everything still up in the air? It's kind of up in the air. I mean, we technically have in the books, we're supposed to continue the tour that basically got canceled last year uh, with Squeeze. 
um, at the end of August. We're supposed to do a run into September, but who knows? Right. Yeah, well, I don't know. We'll stay in touch. It's uh, It has been great to talk to you. And uh, everybody, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time on the True Ambition Podcast. The True Ambition Podcast is brought to you by IT Avalon. For more information and links to other episodes, please visit www.trueambition.org. Now, go find your true ambition. And I'll be your protector.